Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be here again with you this morning on this uh, beautiful day that the Lord has given us. And it was such a tremendous blessing for me and my family to uh, be able to be here with you last week and for us to be able to worship together with you. And it, it was just such a tremendous blessing. And today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be continuing our very brief look at the letter to the Ephesians. And last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, and, and we had read vif, uh, verses 15 through 23. And in that passage, we see that the Apostle Paul is praying that the Ephesians would have the, the eyes of their hearts enlightened by God, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him, so that they may be consciously and experientially aware of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. And we talked about why they needed to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that the Ephesians were suffering from spiritual blindness. And we talked about some of the causes of spiritual blindness, which are the world or the, the culture that we live in, uh, the flesh, which is our sin nature that, that um, so encompasses us sometimes, and the devil. And then we went on to see that this immeasurably great power of God was displayed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So this week we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. And these, we, these verses are really a continuation of the previous point that Paul was making, that this resurrection power of God, which he displayed in raising Jesus from the dead, is now made manifest in the lives of those who would turn from their sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a testimony to the awesome, incomprehensible power of Almighty God. And as we look at these passages this morning, we're going to see that in Christ, for those of us who turn to him in faith, this resurrection power is made available to us. For we were made alive together with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be reading from verses 1 through verses 10, verse 10. And if you're using one of the pew Bibles, you can find this on, on page 1390. So let's read together. And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once you watched, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you this morning with empty hands. And Lord, I pray that you help us to see the depth of our need so that we may see the greatness of your provision. Because you who are rich in mercy because of the love with which you loved us, we who were dead in the trespasses and sins, you made alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you allow us to see the light of your glorious gospel. Lord, I pray that 
you quiet our minds, that you calm our spirits, that you soften our hearts to the preaching of your word so that we may hear your word and be changed by it, God. And we are just so thankful for the awesome privilege of being able to gather here as your saints, as your people, and to worship you together. And we pray that, that our worship is honoring and glorifying to you, to the praise of your glorious grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So as we turn to our text this morning, we see primarily four things going on here. Now, these are familiar, very familiar verses to many of us, and, and there's a lot of theology going on here, but we see that what I believe to be four primary things. So the first thing that we see, first and foremost, is who we were. Paul reminds us of our position before him, before God, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The next thing that we see is what God did, and we see what becomes of us as a result of his power toward those who would believe. Third, we see how he did it, or really the means by which God did this, his power towards us, through which he saved us. And finally, we see why he did it. God gives us essentially four reasons why he did what he did and why he showed the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness toward us. So the first thing we see is that we see who we were apart from Christ. In verses 1 through 2 we read, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once you once, in which you once walked. So that the first thing that we see here is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And this is spiritual death being talked about here, not, not physical death. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But we see in verse 2 we read, in which you once walked. The term walking here is, is referring to how a person conducts their lives. So in essence, we were walking dead. We were, in, in a spiritual sense, we were conducting our lives in accordance with transgressions and sins. And we're going to talk about what that looks like in a few minutes. Now, the term walking dead, it brings to mind a, a popular TV show by the same name. I, I've never actually seen an episode of the show, but I think the title says it all. We get enough from that title alone to know what the show is all about. And it's very apropos, I think, because truly it describes the world apart from Jesus Christ. We are walking dead in the trespasses and sins. It says that the last part of verse 3, it says, like the rest of mankind. So the rest of mankind, apart from Christ, is still in their sins and trespasses. And this is how they're conducting their lives. So those who are not united by faith to Jesus Christ are, are, are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. And we know from Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. So that because we walk in our trespasses and sins, by our very nature, we have earned death. And death was brought into the world by our first parents when they disobeyed God by eating the forbidden fruit. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of this tree, you, you, will, sure, you will surely die. Now, what, could, what did God mean here? What kind of death does this threaten? Is it physical death? Spiritual death? Some combination of the two? Well, the Hebrew word that is used here can mean any and all of those things. But we see that as we read on in Genesis that Adam lived to be 930 years old. So he didn't physically die at the moment that he ate of the tree. However, upon eating of the fruit, both Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden and expelled from God's presence. They were cut off from the source of life and the tree of life. They are in the realm of the dead. 
What they experience outside of Eden is not life as God had intended it, but spiritual death. And by this sin, our first parents fell from their original state of righteousness and communion with God. And in this, we, in them, are victims of death, of this same death. This death came upon us all. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So what does this mean to be spiritually dead? We're going to talk about that more in detail in a moment, but in a nutshell, spiritual death is a term, it's used to describe man's moral inability to embrace the things of God. So while we are dead in our trespasses and sins, we are wholly unable to respond to the command of God to repent and believe. We are wholly unable to embrace righteousness. Now, that's not to say that that spiritually dead people can't do good deeds. They certainly can, and many do. In fact, I'd even go as far to say that there are some unbelievers who are more morally upright than many Christians. And I know that that at first, this statement sounds shocking. But if you think about it, it makes sense. Because as Christians, we're aware of our fallen state. We're keenly aware of our need for a righteousness that is not our own. We're aware that apart from faith in Christ, we are completely unable to please God. But not the unbelieving world. The fact is, they believe that they can please God. They believe that they can be good apart from faith, and apart from Christ's righteousness. Tim Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, and I quote, Most people in our culture believe that if there is a God, we can relate to him and go to heaven through leading a good life. Christianity teaches the very opposite. In the Christian understanding, Jesus does not tell us how to live so that we can merit salvation. Rather, he comes to forgive and save us through his life and death, in our place. God's grace does not come to people who, are more, who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a Savior. Christians, then, should expect to find non-believers who are much nicer, kinder, wiser, and better than they are. Why? Christian believers are not accepted by God because of their moral performance, wisdom, or virtue, but because of Christ's work on their behalf, end quote. You see, most people that you talk to, uh, most people, whether it be friends or family or coworkers or, or whoever, most people in this world believe that they're going to heaven because they're good people. I see this all the time when I talk to my family. They're, I come from a, a Catholic family, and all the time I'll be sharing the gospel with uh, my aunts and my uncles and even my parents, and, and they always say to me, well, God loves me because I'm a good person. Many of you have probably heard the same. And we're going to see from these verses that we're not good people, but we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We also read in this verse that we're following the course of this world. So what does it mean to follow the course of this world? We see in verse 3 that those in the world live in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now what's interesting here is that we read in verse 3 that living in the passions of our flesh is not only a result of following our physical desires, but also the desires of our minds. This is an important point, beloved. Jesus stresses the importance of our thought life in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's also why Paul exhorts us in Romans chapter 8 
verses 5 through 8, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who living, live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. He goes on to say at the end of that passage, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This battle, for sin start, this battle against sin starts in our minds. It starts in the things that we think about, in the things that we set our minds on. If we want to be killing sin in our lives, we have to start with taking captive our thoughts and controlling the things that we allow into our minds because that's, that's where it starts. We, w- the things that we allow our minds to dwell on are the things that we need to control and take captive of if we're going to be battling sin in our lives. The Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle John writes about the dangers of following after the world in his first epistle. We read in 1 John uh, chapter 15, verse 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we need to look no further than the culture around us. We turn on the news and we just see the total and utter depravity that sin has wrecked on this culture and on this world that that is wholly against the things of God. The next thing we see is that, that we're following the prince of the power of the air who is Satan. So we're following after Satan. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4, that with regard to those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, it's interesting to see here that Satan is referred to as the God of this world. So what does that mean exactly? It means that the unbelieving world has, given, has been given over to the dominion of Satan. During the temptation of Jesus, Satan, who is claiming authority over this world, offers to give it to Jesus. We read in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, And the devil took him up and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answers him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone only shall you serve. Now, if you notice that, that Jesus doesn't argue with Satan about his claimed authority over the kingdoms of the world, he just answers him with Scripture saying that, that God alone has the divine right to receive worship. And my point here is not to say that Jesus recognizes or even acknowledges Satan's authority. Whatever authority Satan has, it, it, real or not, It's been granted to him by God, who is sovereign over all things. My point here is to say that Jesus understands that the kingdoms of this world have bowed the knee in worship to Satan. Jesus acknowledges this elsewhere, particularly in John's gospel, that the unbelieving world either either consciously or unconsciously bows the knee to Satan as their king. We read in John chapter 12, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, we were following after Satan, whose spirit, according to verses 2 and 3, is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
whom we all once lived. So we see here also that we were sons of disobedience. So what does it mean to be a son of disobedience? The phrase son of disobedience is a Hebrew-inspired phrase. It's just like the comparison that we see between sons of this world and sons of light in Luke's gospel in chapter 16, verse 8. And I read a commentator um, say that it essentially means that we who are not in Christ belong to the family of those who are in rebellion against the true and living God. And I actually think that, while, while this is true, I actually think that it goes a step further than that. We see elsewhere from John's Gospel in chapter 8 that Jesus levels a staggering charge at the Pharisees. In response to their claim that God is their father, he says in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He goes on to say in verse 47, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. So what Jesus is saying here, in essence, is that those who reject him are not of God. God is not their father, but instead, because they cannot bear to hear his word, they are of their father, the devil, and their will is to do their father's desires. So he was calling the Pharisees, in this case, children of the devil because they rejected his word. And all of this background indicates that when Paul says we are dead prior to salvation, he contends that we're spiritually dead not only because of our unregenerate status, but also because that status results in evil practices that are under judgment. Now, unregenerate is simply, it's a term used to describe those who have not experienced the new birth, those whose hearts have not been changed and regenerated and brought back to life by Almighty God. And lastly, along with being sons of disobedience, we see in verse 3 that by nature we were children of wrath. What Paul is saying here is that the status of being dead and the practice of conducting our lives in accordance with death are not simply a consequence of people or what people do without God, but rather it's both a result of and evidence of what they are. And Paul's claim is that we were all living among them at one time. See, I didn't first have, to, I didn't first have a good nature and then do bad things and then get a bad nature. It's who I am. My nature is selfish and self-centered and demanding and very skilled at making you think that you're the problem. And because of that, I deserve nothing but God's wrath and judgment. Now, one of the most important controversies in the history of church centered around the nature of man. Early in the 5th century, a British monk by the name of Pelagius objected to the idea of original sin. It was his position that Adam's sin affected Adam and Adam alone, and not the very nature of the entire human race. He believed that man was born in a state of righteousness, and that as, as image bearers of God, as one created in the image of God, we were able to maintain that status. He believed that even after the sin of Adam, it was possible for every human being to live a life, live a life of perfect righteousness, and that indeed some had achieved this status. On the other side, Augustine, who um, was considered, uh, he was one of Pelagius' contemporaries, and he's actually considered to be one of the greatest theologians of Western Christianity. 
Augustine argued that the fall seriously impaired the moral ability of the human race. That is to say that, that because of the sin of Adam, the human race was, was wholly un, unable to embrace the things of God. That the fall of Adam plunged all of humanity into a ruinous state of original sin. Now, original sin doesn't refer to the first sin of Adam, it, it, but it refers to the consequences of that sin for the entire human race. So because of Adam, because of the sin of our first parents, we are born children of wrath. And Augustine, like Paul, like Scripture, argued that by our very nature, because of this first sin of Adam, we were born this way. Now the key issue at stake for Augustine was the issue of, of fallen man's moral ability, or, or lack thereof, or man's ability to embrace freely the things of God. And Augustine argued that prior to the fall, Adam and Eve enjoyed a free will as well as moral liberty. The will is the faculty by which we make choices. Liberty refers to the ability to use that faculty and embrace the things of God. See, after the fall, Augustine, he said that 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 faculty, the, the, the ability to choose, remained intact. That is, human beings are still free in the sense that they can choose what they want to choose. They can choose according to their nature. However, their choices are deeply influenced by the bondage of sin, and it holds them in a corrupt state. And as a result of that bondage, the, the original liberty that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall was lost. You see, fallen man is free to make choices, but their choices proceed out of a heart that is in bondage to sin. And as children of wrath, people that are born spiritually dead, they are free to make choices according to their nature, a nature that is dead in sins and trespasses, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. So as fallen man, so fallen man is, is born this way, and, and, and the only way that that moral liberty can be restored, the freedom to embrace the things of God, the only way that that can be restored is through God's supernatural work of grace in the soul. So knowing who we are a part of Christ, that, that we were sons of disobedience, deserving nothing but God's wrath, how should this cause us to look at, at others when they do something that we don't like? How should, we, how should knowing this cause us to look at the person who cuts us off in traffic or, or the waitress who's rude to us at the restaurant? How should it cause us to look at others uh, when there's a long line in the grocery store or, or, or towards our children who disobey us? You see, the reason why we get bothered by these things is in our heart of hearts, we believe that we deserve better. We think that we have the right not to be treated that way. But according to these, these verses in Ephesians, we, are clear, we clearly don't see that. We ought not to think so highly of ourselves. So, beloved, when someone treats us poorly, when, when someone is unkind to us, knowing that apart from Christ, we deserve nothing but his wrath, instead of getting upset, we should echo the words of the English preacher John Bradford when he said, There but for the grace of God go I. And that brings us to our second point. So the second thing that we see in Ephesians 2, we see what God did. So Paul spends the first three verses of this chapter talking about who we were, children of wrath, dead in our sins, following the world, following Satan. It's a dreadful picture, isn't it? Dreadful. And then he begins the verse, verse 4, with two of the most profound words ever written. He starts it out, but God. Beloved, we can stop right there and call it a day as far as I'm concerned. But 
God. The state of man is one of complete hopelessness, but God. Paul writes in verses 4 through 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We see this same theme repeated in the letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 2, verse 13, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we were by nature children of wrath, walking dead in the trespasses and sins. We were born that way. And because we were born that way, we need to be reborn. We need to be born again. And again, this is talking about our spiritual state in these verses. We see Jesus talking about the new birth in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. And again, I'm sure this is very familiar, this passage, to, to many of us. Jesus, he's talking to Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. See, by his power, God provides us with new life. And this is an amazing truth of spiritual recreation. Just as God breathed life into Adam, the Lord gives spiritual life to those who were spiritually dead. This God alone can do. We don't have the ability to bring life from death. A dead person cannot will himself to breathe. A truly lifeless person will not do what we say, no matter how passionate our exhortation. We can't make them rise and walk. Yet we who are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, God makes us alive. This is a profound truth. That we who are dead now possess life. And Paul causes us, he, 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 this causes Paul to, to, uh, to pause and utter the first two great affirmations in this passage. By grace you have been saved. Since the dead are helpless, our spiritual life can only be credited to God alone. Knowing this should allow us to be bold in evangelism. Knowing that how a person responds to our sharing of the gospel, it doesn't depend on, on our exhortation, but on the supernatural work of God in their hearts. And I'm sure that many of, the, many of us are familiar, or we've heard of this analogy. It's an analogy of a drowning person, and it's, it's often been used to describe the spiritual plight of the natural man. In this analogy, a life preserver is, is God's grace and it's held out to the man who's drowning and he can either grab it and be saved or ignore it and perish. The person in this analogy is portrayed as having the ability to reach out and grab the life preserver. And it's only his unwillingness that restrains him. If he would only reach out by faith and take hold of the offer of salvation, then, as, as this analogy is usually presented, he would be saved and born again. Now, while this sounds nice, the truth of the matter is, at least according to the passages that we're reading this morning, we weren't drowning. We were dead. 
dead and lying at the bottom of the sea. And God doesn't throw us a life preserver because in our dead and sinful state, we'd be completely unable to grab hold of it. No, God doesn't throw us a life preserver, but instead, he drags our lifeless bodies up from the bottom of the deep and breathes new life into our nostrils. Praise God. So even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when he made us alive together with Christ, this regenerating act of the Holy Spirit, that, that, that's what this is. It's solely of the Spirit of God. And, and since we were dead, we first had to be made alive before we could believe. We truly are a new creation, created in Christ for good works. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 10 for a moment because as new creatures in Christ, we see that God created us for something. He created us for good works. And I'm not saying here that salvation is merited by works because it, it most certainly is not. And we're going to talk about that in a, mit, in a bit. But the good works that we do as Christians are a result of the, and the consequences of God's new creation work. And in this passage, he describes what is good to him. Making known the, his kindness to a world that must glorify him. We are told in Matthew chapter 5 to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are created in Christ for good works so that in doing so, we glorify Almighty God. It's evidence of our new birth, of our recreation. We also see that God raised us up with him. So the resurrection, of, the resurrection power of God that was displayed in the resurrection of Jesus provides us with eternal life. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we also were brought from death to life. Our spiritual death has been swallowed up in Christ's resurrection victory. Now Paul's point in this verse is to say that believers are united with Christ in his resurrection. He reminds us also of this in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, when he writes, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So not only did God raise us up with him, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now what Paul is saying here is that because our sin is forgiven and its power has been taken away, we are counted as God's own children with the right to heavenly thrones beside his glorious Son. Now this heavenly seating is not merely reserved for a day sometime in the future. He's telling the Ephesians that God has raised them up, past tense, from death to life with Christ by his resurrection power. He also tells them that God has already seated them, past tense, in the heavenly realms. And we touched on this last week, that, that there's this tension in the scriptures between the already and the not yet. And this is a perfect example of that tension. Because how can this be? How can it be that, that we're already raised, that we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places? You see, from God's perspective, eternity is already a present reality. We are God's children in Christ. We already have the status of his son now. Now, despite this, I have to admit that, that all too often, I still see myself from the perspective of my present humanity and my sin. It's hard not to when the world and the flesh and the devil press so tightly against us. And this is why, beloved, I think that it's vital for us 
to get in the habit of, of preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day. To remind ourselves that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I've often made the observation that, that the gospel is not for, simply just for those who don't believe, but it's just as much for believers. We need a constant reminder of who we are in Christ. In his great little book, A Gospel Primer for Christians, author Milton Vincent writes, Over the course of time, preaching the gospel to myself every day has made more of a difference in my life than any other discipline I have ever practiced. I find myself sinning less, but just as importantly, I find myself recovering my footing more quickly after sinning due to the immediate comfort found in the gospel. And I commend this practice to you this morning. Brothers and sisters, preach the gospel to yourselves every day. It is the source of life. So far now, so we move on to point three. So far we've looked at who, God, who we were and what God did. And now we turn our attention to how he did it. To the means by which God saves us. In verses 8 and 9, very familiar verses, we read, for by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we see here that God saves us by grace through faith. So what does it mean to be saved by grace through faith? Well, first and foremost, we need to understand, or the question we need to ask is, what does it mean to be saved? Saved from what? In our first point, we talked about who we were. We were dead in, the sins and trespass, dead in our sins and trespasses. We were following after the world, following after Satan. We were sons of disobedience, deserving God's wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive and raised us up with him in Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be saved, to be rescued from God's wrath and judgment, which by nature we all deserve. This passage says that we were saved by grace. That our deliverance from God's wrath was purely an act of God, purely an act of grace on God's part. Now grace refers to God's unmerited favor upon those that have transgressed his law and sinned against him. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. You see, when a person goes to work and they work an eight-hour day and they receive a fair day's pay for this time, that's called a wage. When a person com competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that's a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or, or high achievements, that's an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize, and deserves no award, and yet receives such a gift anyway, we see a, a picture of God's unmerited favor. This is what we mean when we talk about the grace of God it's receiving mercy when we deserve nothing but wrath. This verse also says that we were saved by grace through faith. The author, of the, the author to the Hebrews defines faith like this, as the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. He's saying that biblical faith is not a vague hope grounded in imaginary, wishful thinking. Instead, faith is a settled confidence that something in the future something that is not yet seen but has been promised by God will, will eventually come to pass because God will bring it about. When answering Thomas, who was one of Jesus' disciples, the one who, who refused to believe in Jesus' resurrection unless he was able to place his fingers in, in the marks on Jesus' hand and the mark in his side, 
Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's from John chapter 20, verse 29. So, so the way that we receive the grace of God, something that none of us deserve, is through faith. And it's not a blind faith, but a knowing, trusting faith. The amazing story of, of Charles Blondin, he's a, he's a famous French tightrope walker, is a wonderful illustration of what true faith is. Blondin's greatest achievement in his fame came on September 14, 1860, when he became the first person to cross a, a tightrope that was stretched 11,000 feet, which is a quarter of a mile, across the mighty Niagara Falls. Now, people from both Canada and America came from miles away to see this great feat. He walked across 160 feet from the fall, above the falls several times, and each time with a, with a different daring feat, once in a sack, on stilts, on a bicycle, in the dark, blindfolded. Even one time, he, he, he even carried a stove and cooked an omelet as he was crossing uh, in the middle of a tightrope. So, so I can't even imagine that. And, and a large ca- a crowd gathered around, and, and, and the buzz of excitement ran along both sides of the riverbank. The crowd oohed and they awed as Blondin carefully walked across one dangerous step after another, pushing a wheelbarrow holding a sack of potatoes. Then at one point, he asked for the, for the participation of a volunteer. Upon reaching the other side, the crowd's applause was so great that it was louder than the, the roar of the falls themselves, and Blondin suddenly stopped and addressed his audience. Do you believe I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? The crowd enthusiastically yelled, Yes, you're the greatest tightrope walker in the world. We believe. Okay, said Blondin. Who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? As far as the the story goes, no one got in the wheelbarrow. In this unique story, it illustrates a real-life picture of what faith actually is. The crowd watched these daring feats. They said that they believed, but their actions proved that they truly didn't. Similarly, it's, it's one thing for us to say that we believe in God. However, true faith, it's true faith when we believe and we put our faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. So the question I have for you this morning is, do you trust him? Do you trust Jesus with your very life? Do you trust that by, by living the life that we could never live and dying the death that we deserve to die, he satisfied once and for all the wrath of God toward us as sons of disobedience, and made us right in God's sight. And if you're here this morning and you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, this is the faith that awaits you. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, deserving of God's wrath. But it doesn't have to be that way, beloved. It doesn't have to be that way. Because God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him in Christ Jesus. To be rescued from his wrath, which by nature we deserve. And if you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't turned from your sin and turned to him in faith, I have good news for you. Today is the day of salvation. This gift is available to you today, but only by grace, through faith. It's not something that you can earn for yourself. If you're sitting here today and you feel the burden of your sin, and you feel your need to be saved from the wrath that is due you, I encourage you, cry out to God right now where you sit. As we sung this morning, he is faithful. 
He's faithful to save you. Now we see in verse 8 of, of, of this passage that not only is salvation by grace through faith, salvation in Christ is a gift, not of our own doing. Paul makes sure that we understand that we take no part in our salvation. Now for centuries, commentators have argued about what the this or the it in this sentence means. Some have said it is grace. Others say it is faith. Most modern commentators say that it is the whole thing, grace and faith, and I agree with them. See, grace is his unmerited favor. It's God's unmerited favor, but it comes to us through faith in what he has done. But even that faith is a gift so that no one can boast. And if we had any hand in our salvation, even in the mustering up of the measure of faith necessary to believe, I guarantee you we surely would boast. Every single one of us would. And even if we're not willing to admit it, in our hearts of hearts, we know that that's true. We acknowledge this fact every time that we look down at someone else and think, this, this person's so bad that they're beyond God's grace. And I'm just as guilty as everyone else. There have been times, and I'm ashamed to admit it, that, that I've looked at the lives of some of the people that I know and, and I've thought, there's no way that God could save this person. They're, they're just too far gone. You see, the way, that we lives our, the way that we live our lives and the things that we think about reveals more about what we believe than the words that come out of our mouths. But praise God for his grace because he, he doesn't allow me to wallow in that sinful thought for too long. He ri- reminds me constantly that I'm a wretched sinner deserving of nothing but his wrath. But instead, he lavishes his grace upon me so abundantly, especially when I was dead in my sins and trespasses and an object of his wrath. Paul emphasizes this point in the next verse, that salvation in Christ is not a result of works. There is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. There is no amount of good works that can merit God's favor. And the reason why it's so important to understand that salvation is wholly a work of God, that it's got nothing to do with what we do, that it's got nothing to do with our good, good works at all. It's so important that we realize this truth. See, we were too dead to be the source of our salvation, too weak to be the maintainers of our salvation. We're too finite to be the eternal stewards of our salvation. The magnitude and magnificence of what our salvation involves indicates that we, it must entirely be a work of God's grace. See, many times I'll, I'll hear people say things like, I need to clean myself up and, and, and then I'll come to Christ. Or I need to start doing better or doing better in this or that. That I'm just not good enough to come to church. If that's you, it's time to abandon your self-salvation project and come to Christ just as you are. God doesn't need you to do anything in order to save you. My favorite lines, uh, one of my favorite hymns is a hymn called Come Ye Sinners. And my favorite lines from this hymn go like this. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And then it says, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there art 10,000 charms. Christ himself supplies all of the good works you'll ever need in his perfectly righteous life. This This perfectly righteous life that is given to you 
when you turn to him in repentance and faith. When you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, he stands ready to save you. Finally, we, we see why God did this incredibly great thing. So why did God make us spiritually alive? The first pre- reason that Paul gives is he did this because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Isn't that, isn't that remarkable? He, leave, he loved us even when we were dead in our fallen state. And what's staggering about this proclamation is, is that it says that God's love was not expressed towards those who were innocent. God expresses his love to those who were disobedient, who by nature followed the ways of the world and the devil. It says in Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 8, that God shows his, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This beautiful truth of God's unconditional love is the heart of the gospel that becomes most dear to us when by God's grace we see our own weakness so clearly that we know that there's nothing in us that warrants God's love. All too often I'll hear from those whose sin is so plain to them that they believe that God shouldn't love them. The high school student whose, whose dating life has become promiscuous, the friend whose marriage is crumbling due to his own pride and stubbornness, the mother who doubts that she can treat her children any better than her mother treated her. Brothers and sisters, if you're sitting here today thinking that because of what I have done, because of who I am, God shouldn't love me, you're right to think that. On the basis of justice alone, a holy God should not love the sons of disobedience. He should not love the children of, yet, of wrath. Yet, having dispensed his justice in the judgment of his Son, our God not only delights to extend us his mercy, but by his power he enables us to respond to his love. We also see that he did it because of the rich, his, he is rich in mercy and grace. If grace is getting something that we don't deserve, Mercy is not getting something that we do. And because we were dead in, the trespasses, dead in trespasses and sins, following after the world, following after Satan, we deserve nothing but God's wrath. But God is rich in mercy and grace. That means that he has an unlimited supply of both of these things. Now it's easy sometimes to think that because of our sin, because of, of the fact that we keep falling into sin, that we'll reach the point where God's mercy and grace will run out. It's easy to think in the moments after we sin that I really blew it this time. And one of these days, God's going to say, enough, and be done with me. It's easy to think that, but, but in those moments, we need to remember that God is rich in mercy, that he is rich in grace, and his mercy and grace will never run out. And the riches of God's mercy and grace should cause us to have an attitude of forgiveness towards others. How we respond towards others should reflect the measure of grace and mercy that God has shown in forgiving us. In Matthew's Gospel in chapter 18, we read in verses 20 and 21 an account of Peter talking to Jesus, and it says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but seventy-seven times. Jesus' expression is one of perfect and unlimited forgiveness. And as followers of Jesus Christ, as, as creatures created in the image of God, raised from our lifeless state, 
We are to reflect in our own forgiveness of others' transgressions against us, the very nature of our Lord, in whose image we are to reflect to the world. We do this by showing mercy and grace to those who have offended us. The person who cuts us off in traffic, or, or the waitress who's unnecessarily rude, or, or the friend who lashes out at us in anger, not realizing what they're doing. We are to extend them the same mercy and grace that our Heavenly Father has shown to us. So as you f- reflect on this past week, as you, as you think about the various interactions that you've had with, with people in, in, at home, or, or at school, or at work, did you demonstrate to the world the riches of God's mercy and grace that he has shown toward you? And if the answer is no, ask yourself, how is this week going to be different? And that's another reason why Paul gives for why God made us alive spiritually. He did it so that he might show, he might show the riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In verse 7 we read, so in, that, so in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God wants us to marvel for all of eternity at the riches of his grace and kindness toward us. It's going to take the rest of eternity to fathom the immeasurable depths of that incredible kindness and the incredible love of God. Love that he has shown to us, people who surely don't deserve it. There's a long, one of my favorite songs, uh, there's a line from one of my favorite songs called How He Loves. It's a song by David Crowder and, and it describes the depth and the riches of God's grace very well. Crowder sings, if his grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. It's my favorite line in the whole song. And what it asks us to do is, if we think about it, it's asking us to compare us to the size of the ocean. That's how measure, immeasurably deep and rich God's grace is toward us. And I think back to when I was a kid. I, I grew up in South Florida, and, and uh, we used to go to the Keys uh, quite frequently. And, and what's amazing about the Keys is, is if you've ever been there, you could go down to Key West and you can go out in a boat far enough where you can no longer see land. You just look out and there's water. And the water's deep. It's, it's, it's only about waist deep. So you can get out of the boat and, and look around and not see land and just see water. And, and I remember back to a time when, when I did that and I experienced it. And it was amazing. I just looked at myself and said, wow, <laughs> it was just awesome. And, and that's the depth of God's grace and the riches of his mercy and kindness toward us. And Beloved, I, I hope we see that. And lastly, we see that, that why he did it was for his own glory. Repeatedly through these ten verses, we see Paul's, his expression, we, we see the expression with or in Christ. We are made alive with Christ. We are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. All this points to the fact that God shows the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us through his Son, who according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, we read, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
So in talking about his imminent death, Jesus proclaims, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus viewed the events that were, that were about to t- transpire, so his death and burial and resurrection, as the means by which both he and the Father would be glorified. And it's through, the, that th- it's through this great act that the children of wrath, who are dead in, the transpa- in their trespasses and sins, are reconciled to God through the Son. So ultimately, the reason why God took children of wrath who were dead in sins and trespasses and made them alive together with Christ for his own glory. Beloved, understanding who we were and knowing how and why God showed the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us should dramatically affect how we look not only at our lives, but at the lives of everyone else, of those around us. And not only that, it should inform us about what it means to display the love of God and the love of Christ to the world. So as you go about your week this week, I, I pray that, that knowing this, knowing, knowing who we were and who we now are because of Christ, changes who we are and just compels us to share his love and display his love and grace and mercy to everyone around us. As we see from this passage, that's why we were created. We, we're a new creation created in Christ for this very purpose. We've been created in Christ to proclaim who he is as he has revealed himself in the person of his son. And we don't have to know all the answers to, to divine mysteries to be able to proclaim him. If we're able to speak like the man born blind who was healed by Jesus, we'll fulfill our calling. When asked to explain how Jesus healed him, the man could not. All he could say was, one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you for, for the glory of your gospel, for, for the richness of your grace and your mercy that you have showered upon us as those who have turned to you in, in repentance faith, in faith. And God, I just pray as we go forth from this place this morning that we leave here changed, that we, we leave here with a burning desire in our, in our hearts to, to know you and to make you known to this lost and fallen world. And we know that this is wholly an act of grace on your part, God, that, that we don't deserve any of it. And I just pray, Lord, that you bless us this morning. We love you and we praise you and we just, just to thank you for the light of your glorious gospel. In Christ's name I pray, amen.